Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the 16th chapter of the book of Acts as we continue our journey with Paul here on the second missionary journey. Our reading today will be verses 16 through 40 of chapter 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that it's not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering that the j uh, jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer walk, woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in this house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once he and all his family then he brought them up to the into his house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that had believed in God but when it was day the magistrates sent the police saying let these men go and the jailer reported the words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent, you, have sent to let you go. Therefore, come now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. 
Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens, so they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We pray especially today that you would speak through your word, speak life into us, speak encouragement, confront us, rebuke us, chasten us, correct us, encourage us, lift us up, and build us up in the faith. And we are so thankful that your word works mightily in the hands of your spirit to make us more Christ-like. In this we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Now we are together on Paul's so-called second missionary journey where he visits uh, three pretty large cities. At this point, he is in Philippi. Uh, from which the book of Philippians or, uh, was the destination for one of the letters of Paul. In addition to Lydia, who we know was a God-fearer, familiar with God's promises in Scripture, Luke profiles two others in Philippi who were transformed by the power of Jesus' name. There was a fortune-telling slave and the keeper of the city jail were obviously entangled in the miseries that Satan and sin have introduced into the world. The former as a victim and the latter as a victimizer. Yet the power of Jesus' name sets both free. The contrast between the very mainstream figure Lydia and the extremely exotic figure, the slave girl, could not possibly be greater. There's a lot of ways to look at a passage in the New Testament. You can look at it historically and bring to bear upon the passage the historical background and see how it contributes to the flow of the narrative and how Paul's missionary journey occurred. Another way you can look at the uh, text would be uh, even psychologically looking at what it must have felt like to be in prison after having been caned and beaten with rods and singing hymns and praising God and some of the other internal uh, emotions experienced by those that are here. Another way you can look at the text, however, is literarily. And that, I believe, is the primary contribution of Luke here. He's going to draw a profound contrast between all three converts uh, that take place. First, we saw a lot about Lydia last week, how the uh, Lord had opened our heart. But when you consider somebody who's in the mainstream like Lydia and an extremely exotic figure of the slave girl, it it couldn't be greater. They differ so much from one another that Luke might be thought to have deliberately selected them in order to show us how the saving name of Jesus proved its power in the life of the most diverse types of people. Who was this girl? Well, the text says she had a spirit of divination by which she predicted the future. But the Greek says, literally, that she had the the spirit of Python. 
In ancient Greek culture, a pythoness was a person who was believed to be possessed by the spirit of the python which guarded the mythic temple of Apollo and the Delphic oracle. The Greeks called these people ventriloquists because they uncontrollably made clairvoyant predictions and proclaimed prophecies and gnomic utterances and all sorts of strange voices that were foreign. Since the society at that time considered them inspired by Apollo, and this was a very pagan culture, uh, and the python, many people came to the masters of this slave girl and paid money. She was a money-making machine, to be honest with you. To ask her questions and have her, the, her make statements to them. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. So this girl was in double bondage, not only to the, the powers of darkness, but also to evil men who were using her, motivated by greed, to line their own pockets. Totally evil, evil, evil. And instead of having pity for her bizarre behavior and obvious torment, they used her to make money. Sometimes these uh, uh, slave girls that were uh, supposed to be mouthpieces as a pythoness of Apollo would fall into a trance and, uh, you know, people have always paid for any opportunity to find out what's going to happen in the future. No different today than then. Uh, people go to uh, seers or prophetesses or whatever to get their fortune told, which is not a really wise thing to do. So all of you are doing it, stop it. So the contrast, because by the way, could they possibly get, is Satan omniscient? No, he's not. But does he know more than we do? Yes, he does. So you have to be careful about playing around with the powers of darkness. So the contrast between Lydia and the slave girl cannot be greater. Lydia is a very respectable businesswoman, a pillar of the community, but the slave girl is scarcely a member of the human community at all. She's almost literally a piece of property. She's a walking freak show. Lydia is a very moral and religious person who loved and knew the Bible, but the slave girl is completely alienated from any sense uh, or knowledge of the truth. You know, uh, years ago, the very first time I ever preached in my life was in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Um, I had gone on a mission trip, and my responsibility on the mission trip was to put together a vacation Bible school for the children that the missionaries had ministry to throughout Haiti and, and one of the Virgin Islands, Tortola. That's where we were going. I was on a mission trip with one other man, a guy a little younger than me, and 15 women. Now, Haiti is a very hot, it was in the summer, and very muggy place. And uh, to show you how life is for missionaries, we stayed at this missionary's house. He had a pretty good-sized compound. And in two days, two days, we'd used up their entire water supply for one month. You know, southern girls got to have big hair. Back then, they had big hair. And they washed their hair two or three times a day. They'd wash it when they got up. After they go out in the mugginess, they'd come back and wash their hair again. Used up all the water. 
Now, I didn't run into any slave girls, but I have to tell you, voodoo is a major practice in Haiti. You could feel it. You could sense the powers of darkness in that country. And so when I, I, I didn't find out I was preaching until I was on the plane on the way to Miami. And so I'm on the plane, and this woman who is a ventriloquist, uh, that was her ministry, she comes up to me and she says, uh, the evangelist couldn't make it this trip, so you're going to be preaching. I had never preached in my entire life. I'd led Bible studies for, you know, two or three years. And I knew how to do a Bible study, but I didn't know how to preach. And so I remember, first of all, I started thinking, those people don't speak English. So I went and asked her again, what am I supposed to do? She said, you'll have an interpreter. Well, I remember I preached on 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 about our fellowship with Christ. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, uh, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And then I went on to verse 9 and following out of uh, 1 John chapter 1. But I remember distinctly preaching in this group. There were about 5,000 Haitians there was me and a guy younger than me, the missionary, his wife, and 15 southern girls sitting up front. The, th the thing that gave me comfort was the singing. As the people began to sing, the, the tunes were the same as what we sing. The words obviously were Creole French and were different. But I remember preaching, and I would preach and make a gesture and then look at the interpreter, and he would, he would do the exact same move and gesture I did as I preach. I have to tell you, it's hard to keep your train of thought because I'm watching him, and I'm looking around. And at the end of the service, you know, they asked me to give an invitation, and so I started getting, and there were like 25 men in white shirts and black pants and they jumped up during the invitation. They would go out in the congregation. They would grab a person and bring them down front. And I thought, how do they know who to get? And how do they know? It was a strange experience. But I sort of resonate with what Paul must have experienced, even though uh, he cast a demon out. I didn't do any of that as far as I know. But uh, he did. But think about that. Lydia had much to be proud of in her life, but the slave girl was a completely marginalized, non-person without a shred of any dignity. Lydia has a moderate amount of power, both social and economic, but the slave girl is completely powerless, without any self-control. All this is to show, as F.F. Bruce says, that the gospel can address and transform absolutely any condition it encounters. It is not only for the cultural, it's not only for the able, nor is it only for the helpless and the broken. The contrast extends to how Paul ministers to these two women. When Luke calls her a pythoness, he's not buying into all the superstition and mythology, but he and Paul does recognize her as being demon-possessed controlled by unseen masters, and exploited by her human masters. With one stroke, he breaks the power that both have over her. How? Over a period of days, we are told that Paul grew troubled, which probably remain, uh, means two things, annoyed on the one hand, and deeply grieved and distressed for her on the other hand. 
Finally, he publicly challenged the demonic spirit in the name of Jesus, and it came out of her. Even her master saw that she had a new peace of mind. She was back to calm and normal, and they were howling mad. Lydia had come to Christ very quietly. The slave girl came very noisily. Lydia had come to Christ through a Bible study, stressing how Christ fulfills the law and the prophets, but the slave girl was brought to Christ through a power encounter. To Lydia, Jesus was presented as the Messiah of Israel. To the slave girl, he was presented as the bondage breaker, the all-powerful liberator. For Lydia, he is also the, uh, the fact is that Jesus is also the liberator for Lydia and the fulfiller of the law for the slave girl. But in their initial encounter, each was confronted with a different feature of Jesus' multifaceted glory. So when we're sharing the gospel with people, we need the flexibility when presenting the gospel. We must consider how different a person's needs and problems and issues can be and try to bring the facet of the gospel that addresses that. What led, uh, by the way, the Philippian jailer to believe? And as we look at his pre-Christian uh, spiritual condition with that of Lydia and the Pythoness, how does Paul lead him to Christ? We're sort of going to uh, quickly pass on how Paul and Silas found themselves in jail. The uh, owners of the slave girl were not interested in all the fact that she's now liberated and at peace. Uh, the gravy train is over. They were not interested in all in the fact uh, that she was in her right mind. They were furious that their income from her was gone. And so they, in a clever, subtle way, hid their true anger with Paul and Silas and tried to arouse the prophet's racist attitudes by talking about these Jews who were polluting the culture of us Romans without any trial. The crowd began to beat them and the magistrates imprisoned them. Then follows the memorable account of the conversion of the Philippian jailer. What led him to faith? What led him to seek Christ? First, he must have been astounded that Paul and Silas, who have been bruised and bleeding, were praying and singing hymns to God at midnight. Or just think about that for a moment. It's not hard to resonate with Elihu's assertion that God gives us songs in the night. I don't know if you ever sing at night if you can't sleep. If you're next to someone, I wouldn't recommend you do it out loud. But maybe you quote scripture to yourself, or maybe you remember the words of a great hymn that's of great comfort to you, which is why old fuddy-duddies like me tell you we need to sing the hymns. There's more theology packed in the hymns than there is in 50 praise songs. I like praise songs. I'm not against them. I think there is a... Um, existential dimension to us that needs to do that and some people say well they're repetitives well so is the psalms uh j.i packer said that in class one time i remember but anyway they're singing they're rejoicing in god's grace after having been caned publicly and thrown into jail with stocks on so the philippian jailer 
And all the prisoners, verse 25, had a look at the way Christianity fortifies you to face the worst life can send. People are watching you, by the way. If you're at work and they know you're a Christian or you're anywhere else where people know you are a Christian, they think you're a hypocrite like everybody else, but when they see the reality, they have no explanation for it. They're curious. Second, when the earthquake came, giving all the pre prisoners access to freedom, the jailer was totally shocked to find that Paul and Silas had restrained all the inmates. By doing so, they saved his life. You saw where he had drawn his sword and was anticipating suicide, which is what a Roman jailer did when the prisoners escaped. He did that as a matter of honor before uh, his uh, superiors arrived. So when the earthquake came, uh, this act of service to him in respect for the law humbled this jailer. And the view of their influence and leadership over other prisoners probably awed him as well. Uh, for some who want to disobey the laws of the land in the name of Christ, you know my position on that is if they command you to do something God forbids or forbid you to do something God commands, then civil disobedience is in order. But otherwise there's submission. And here's the case where the Apostle Paul submitted to the law and didn't escape the jail, thereby costing the jailer his life. There's more going on to the story, even this story now, than any of us know. So, this act of service and respect for the law humbled him, and the view of their influence and leadership over the pro prisoners probably awed him as well, thus leading him to ask emotionally, what must I do to be saved? In some, he was impressed with the character of Christians, and he was dramatically helped in a crisis by Christians. Don't think people aren't watching, and don't think the way you live and the way I live has no impact. Compare also with me his pre-Christian spiritual condition. The jailer in many ways was sort of in the middle of the story between the conditions of Lydia and the Pythoness slave girl. He was not a moral, Bible honoring person, but neither was he completely out of control and broken. Unlike Lydia, he did not come calmly and gently during a Bible study, knowing what he was doing, but neither was he confronted and pursued by the evangelist in any kind of forceful power encounter way. It's doubtful that he knew exactly what he was asking for when he asked the question, what do I, what must I do to be saved? He could not have known very much about what salvation would mean, unlike Lydia, and he probably uh, just was just deeply aware that these men had a power and a character and a peace that he completely lacked. I mean, he was ready to kill himself, and there they were calmly in the jail going nowhere. And he had to ask himself the question, if I was them, I would be so gone right now. Why are they here? And so he's asking is to them, what do you have that makes you like you are? Without this, I don't think I can survive. 
So how did Paul lead the Philippian jailer to Christ? First, Paul summarized the gospel. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, you and your family. Paul does not mean that if you believe, your family will automatically be saved. No one is ever saved apart from faith and repentance in the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one. It is a personal decision or response to the truth of the gospel. But this is the way to be saved, he says, not just for you, but your whole family. But this summary was not enough. Paul then spoke the word of the Lord to him. This shows that a brief gospel summary is not enough. People need to know what believe means. They need to know who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he did. Therefore, he would not be asking the question, what must I do to be saved? But what has Jesus done to save me? And so, Paul rather quickly insisted that this gospel instruction be done in a group. He asked the jailer to gather his family around him and to hear the word. This is wise in so many ways, uh, because if an individual converts without the rest of his or her family, it can lead to division, separation, and alienation within the family. Also, it shows how people tend to come to Christ through natural networks of relationships, not cold turkey evangelism. Fourth, they were baptized when they believed. Other places in the New Testament indicate that the early church gave extensive instructions to converts before they were baptized, so no particularly uh, amount of time between belief and baptism can be said to be the biblical one. It depended on the situation, and here Paul thought it important to let the people show their commitment to Christ in a concrete way very quickly. I hate to say this, but when I used to go to the Church of Christ with my grandmother and grandfather as a child, I would sit there and pr pray, this is stupid, that nobody would walk forward and receive Christ because then you had to stay another 20 minutes while they got the baptism on. How awful is that, huh? I should be in hell, shouldn't I? And I would be, but for Jesus. But I can remember there, me and my brothers looking at each other, going, I hope nobody comes up, I hope nobody comes up. And almost every time somebody would, and we'd have to sing some more of those uh, a cappella hymns that they like to sing. My grandfather was the music leader. He'd pat his foot, and then we'd sing. And, uh, of course, we were out of our mind with boredom. And my grandmother's praying all of her heart that we'd be saved. And uh, her prayers were answered. We were, but not in the church of Christ. So anyway, what's profound about this is the way this all happened. In fact, every Jewish head of a house, now here's something I think is profoundly interesting. What's most surprising and may be very deliberate is that three, three persons Luke selects for this chapter were three persons that were the very opposite of what a Jewish male like Paul would have been. In fact, every Jewish head of the household would rise in the morning and thank God what? He would thank God in a very typical and common prayer that he was not born a Gentile, a woman, 
or a slave. Who is converted in this chapter? A Gentile, two women, and a slave. When Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, which I think historically was previous to this, he included that very combination. Yet here there were three kinds of people now united with Paul as his brothers and sisters and now the new foundation of the new church. And it is noteworthy that Luke ends the story referring to all the new Christians as their brothers. How important it is to show the world that through Christ people can become family brothers and sisters who, outside the church, would never give each other the time of day. That's the miracle and power of the gospel as we see it operating on three people. Now I want you to think of people right now you know. Are they more like Lydia? Maybe they're, they're a person who, who's knowledgeable of the Bible, who maybe attends a church, but in your engagement with them, you sense there's no depth of relationship. There's no real connection between them and Jesus. Or do you know anyone who's, who's under bondage, either to substances or to lifestyles that are totally destructive? I do. I know people like that. I have people like that in my family. In my family, I have people who are living like this pythoness, this slave girl. Is the gospel powerful enough to call them out of darkness into light? Absolutely. I don't know any jailers, but I know a lot of Gentiles, because uh, I is one, or I was one. And uh, I know lots of uh, men that I encounter who don't know Jesus, and who I have talked to about the Lord Jesus Christ uh, without much response so far but just think of the confidence that you and I should have in the gospel's ability to take that which is broken that which is moral but not connected that which is ignorant and give life and hope and peace and meaning what a powerful chapter that Luke gives us on the second missionary journey up to this point. Now let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can have hope and we can be confident that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation unto all who believe, the Jew first and also the Greek. We thank you that that gospel works its way into the hearts of people who are dead and lost, who have no hope, who are without Christ, who are in the world. And we thank you for your generous grace that has opened our eyes to see. And we pray that if anyone here does not see the beauty and glory of Jesus, who is in himself the gospel, the good news of a Savior, Redeemer, Liberator, who can enter our lives and make us new, now, Father, as we continue to worship you, we pray that you would continue to pour out your mercy and grace upon us for Christ's sake. Amen.